I mean, I think there's no secret sauce to it. You've got to continue to, you know, bring your investors good opportunities, be really good to your investors. And then once you build that relationship, make the ask, right? Like, hey, if, if you have a guy who might not be accredited, but he's on the upper end of your of your range in terms of his net worth, try to figure out who his centers of influences are. All right, guys, thank you again for joining us for another amazing episode. Today, we have Brian Adams. A little bit about him, president and founder of Excelsior Capital, co-founder of Priam Properties, um, 10 plus years experience in real estate, private equity and investor relationship, a former attorney, a very accomplished individual in the real estate space and as an attorney. And first question right off the bat that we're going to ask you is, you know, as an attorney and with your background, how did you find your niche in, in real estate? Because I see you did a little bit of, of residential as well, um, but then you went commercial. However, your main focus has really been equity raising, investor relationships. So how did you get into that piece? Yeah, I, I got into the business. I was very fortunate. I married um, uh, my wife's family. Who I married into, obviously, they have a background in commercial real estate, private equity. So they have a single family office that has been investing with sponsors and GPs and doing fund investments for a long time. So I just was incredibly fortunate to be able to, you know, get exposure to all these things that I frankly had really no background into when I first got into the business. Um, like you said, I was an attorney. I was actually a prosecutor for the Nashville-Davidson County uh, district attorney's office and the vehicular trial team unit. So I wasn't even a real estate lawyer or a corporate lawyer. Um, I was trying cases for the most part. Um, so the way I got into the business was just through connectivity with a lot of the sponsors and GPs the family had a relationship with. And then when it came to actually deciding where I wanted to spend my efforts, at first it was kind of all over the board. We were just kind of going where the deals were. It was 2010 in Nashville, so we were very fortunate to take advantage of this rising tide, everything happening in town. Once I kind of drilled down and actually had an investment thesis and a little bit more of a, a kind of a concrete approach, I talked to a lot of my investor base, and they already had kind of great relationships with multifamily operators. They were doing triple net deals already, and office and commercial seemed to be a food group or a product type that they just didn't have a lot of exposure to. And so it started out by saying, well, you know, I think I can fill a need and fill a void here and occupy a niche. And then it kind of turned into obviously our a core part of our business. And it's changed throughout the years. We, we haven't been beholden to an exact product type and we continues to change, especially with COVID, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that's how I kind of got into it was very fortunate to marry my wife just kind of started doing deals, running around without really a plan, and then spent some time actually thinking about, okay, well, what's a scalable, repeatable product that can offer people that they would want? And, and that's how I got into the, the business that I'm in today. Gotcha. So when you, when you get, were introduced to this, what attracted you specifically to it, right? I mean, was it the returns? Was it um, the tax advantages? Because Obviously, something had to have to gain you interest. There are many things. I mean, you could have gone into stock and bonds or any other kind of investment or syndicating any other asset. Why? Why real estate? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was extremely fortunate. 
uh, kind of a recurring theme in my life, I guess. But I, I took a, a class at the Vanderbilt Business School. Um, it was just kind of offered to a nonprofit organization that I was a part of for young men. So one of the business school teachers there, Michael Burcham, he's kind of a legend in town. He's had multiple successful exits within venture capital, healthcare for the most part. But the first day of class, it's probably me and 20 other guys who are kind of these young, hungry, mid 20 year old guys. And he says, let me guess, you're all here because you want to start a company and get rich. And kind of look at each other and say, yeah, this is probably about right. Um, and he said, that's fine, but let's, let me go through a thought process with you here. Look at the Fortune 500, take out anyone who married into wealth or who inherited wealth. And what you're left with are really three buckets. The one bucket is people who did the corporate ladder gig. They kind of grinded it out at General Electric or Microsoft or whatever. They started accruing kind of more and more stock options and shares in addition to their salary. And they put in a career and they just did very well. And they were very fortunate to be a C-suite executive at one of those companies. The other one is you started a company, right? You were an entrepreneur. You were in your garage with a friend and you had this great idea. The next thing you know, you have Amazon and you've made a lot of money. And then the third one was real assets. So commercial real estate, timber, oil and gas, energy. And I thought that was probably one of the smarter things I ever heard in my life to be able to distill that down into something that you could really put your hands around. And so I started having coffee with anyone that would meet with me. I had some time on my hands the DA's office was a great job, but it wasn't really a job that took up a ton of my time. And so I had the opportunity to network. And because of my wife's family, I had the ability to get a lot of meetings with people that otherwise probably wouldn't meet with me. I started meeting people in the, across these fields. And the corporate guys worked really hard, very difficult to know whether or not you're going to make it to the C-suite or not. A lot of other factors involved. Starting a company, I didn't have any great ideas and it seemed like it was really risky and a lot of people kind of flamed out. I started hanging out with a bunch of real estate guys and realized, man, a lot of these guys do really well. They don't work terribly hard and they're not like the smartest guys in the world. This seems like a business that I can kind of sink my teeth into. And if I work really hard, maybe carve out a nice little niche, I could create a business here. And that's how I got into it, to be honest. Nice. Man, I, I <laughs> That's like my brother's dream, right? There. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like me, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's that's pretty much. There's, there's not anything more to it at first. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I nice. Because you, you gotta you gotta find when you you like it. I mean, it's a it's a path, the path of least resistance, and for many people, yeah, it works. Yeah. Can you can you talk to because we know you do uh, acquisitions, but can you talk to us specifically about capital raising? Yeah. Uh, which is something that my brother and I are. Uh, building up to, uh, especially during these times? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the one of the realizations you need to make early on in the business, and when I talk to, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs or people who want to be a sponsor or a general partner, you just have to recognize that in this business, in the commercial real estate sponsor business, it is extremely capital intensive. So you're always constantly raising capital. And it seemed like when I first started hanging out with a lot of other sponsors and GPs, they all hated fundraising. It was the worst part of the, about the business for them. They didn't like asking for money. They didn't like the marketing component on it. They didn't want to be considered a salesperson. And so very early on in my career, I just embraced that whole role and mentality of, I'm going to be a salesperson. 
And I'm not going to be afraid to make the ask to put myself out there and get a bunch of no's. And I started hanging out with other salespeople, you know, like the Northwestern Mutual guy that's put in 40 years. And he's following that kind of three, 10, one program every day. And I just started picking up tricks and tips and pitching a ton. I was doing meetings with anyone who could talk to me, pitching them, getting no's, getting warm introductions, getting referrals. And I, and I think one of the best things my father-in-law did, but also one of the hardest things was when I got into the business, he's a very well-regarded person in town. He could have easily made a couple of intros and continue to really help me get in front of some high net worth individuals. He made two introductions and he said, you can tell anyone in town that I'm an investor, but this is all I'm going to do from the capital raising side. And at first I was really frustrated. I thought you could do more than this. This is like, this is not a lot, <laughs> but it was the best thing you could have done because I learned the hard way, how to capital raise, how to get the nose, what not to do. And at this point, the way that I think about the company in a lot of ways is a sales and marketing company that just happens to have commercial real estate as the product that we pitch, which seems small, but it makes a world of difference when you're talking about a company of 12 people, you know, two and a half million square feet under management, and how we think about fundraising and marketing and capital raising. We just go about it from a little different perspective than a lot of folks. So we kind of embrace the suck. We consider ourselves salespeople. And, you know, at this point, I've got a couple of people that I work with that helped me with all of that. So that's how I got into the business. And I love that part of it. Um, frankly, more than I like the real estate uh, component of it. I just really enjoy sales. So yeah, it was a good fit for me. And, and obviously in this business, when you have to raise a lot of capital, especially from individuals, you're talking about kind of a high volume business. And so I like that part of it. Can we say, can, oh, go sorry, ahead. Oscar, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, man. No, I, I was going to say, because I, I relate so much to what you say at the beginning, right? Uh, you embrace something that people were looking at, oh my God, sales sucks. Um, could you say that is it's sort of like fake it until you make it sort of thing? And that you, I mean, yeah, it's basically a, nobody wants to do it. Let me, let me, let me do it. Yeah. You I know? mean, I think when you, when you talk about running the business and building the business and scaling the business, you can outsource to a third party to a lot of different things, accounting, tax, property management, um, et cetera. But the two things that you really can't outsource that you always will pay a premium for that you internally need to be really good at, finding deals and raising capital. Because unless you have those two things, you don't have a business in the commercial real estate sponsorship game. So I'm a big proponent of you need to have really, really talented, total rock star rainmakers in those two places internally. And what a lot of people try to do is they say, oh, when I get over X amount of revenue or when I raise X amount of money, I'm going to third party this and outsource it. Somebody else is going to deal with it. It never works. It's just never as good as when you are the chief sales officer, when you're the CEO, because you're the face of the franchise. And I, I see a lot of sponsors get burned out on that side of it. Because they don't, I don't think they have the right mindset about how to do it over a long period of time. Um, so that, that's just kind of how we think about it. How I think about running the company is, you know, you can certainly do some things to help leverage your time and accelerate that sales process. But at the end of the day, you are the chief sales officer. Nice. Love I like it. That. That, that's, um, 
extreme ownership right there. I like it. And then, so you, you mentioned, you know, there were some do's and don'ts that, you know, your father-in-law kind of told you. Can you, can you share a little bit about do's and don'ts when you yeah. were doing that capital raising? Yeah. So I've been doing this 12 years. I've probably raised 85 to 90 million of equity. And it's all, it's for the most part, it's all been through individuals and families and kind of what private wealth management firms. So no big institutions. And I've made a ton of mistakes. And I'll just be very open and vulnerable that early in my career, I screwed up all the time. And hopefully by doing some things like this, I can just help people not make those same mistakes. I think it's much more powerful to tell people, don't step in this pothole. than it is for me to say how great I am and this is what you should do. So I'll answer that by saying what I recommend to a lot of people is be realistic about your original and logical investor base. When you get into this business, when you're starting out, you probably have a hundred people that will take your call, have a meeting with you, respond to an email that might legitimately give money to you in one of your deals. You've just got to be realistic that you're not going to be able to go to a pension plan or an endowment or a huge family office off the bat, and they're going to write you a $5 million or a $10 million check. It's just not realistic. And the way we think about sales and marketing is the cost of customer acquisition is a function of how much time and money it takes to get that LP to convert into an investor, that prospect into an LP. And so one of the things that I do is I, re- I tell people to reverse engineer it. Write down 100 people that are in your network that maybe actually would invest with you. And instead of just hard pitching them right off the bat, sit down and ask them, hey, if you were to invest in a commercial real estate private deal, what would you want it to look like? What would you want it to feel like? What would you want to make sure it didn't happen, right? And so take all the pain points and the issues that they have and solve those problems by just giving them the product and the experience that they want. I see a lot of sponsors say, I found this great deal. It's terrific. I'm going to go out there and tell everyone about it. I'm going to cram it down their throat and they're going to invest with me. Well, they may not want what you have to offer. And if you have this beautiful, shiny thing, but you can't raise capital around it, it's a piece of art. And art is great, but it's not a business. A business is a scalable, repeatable thing, right? And so what I tell people a lot is just talk to these people and understand what they want and what they don't want and give them the product that they want. And that conversation will go a lot quicker for you than it is starting from the other side, finding the deal first and then bring it to them. Because I think if you sit down and actually listen to what they want, it's probably a little bit different than what you have in your head. Um, and, and so I, that's kind of the big piece of advice that I give people off the bat. That is amazing advice. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, we're working big right now talking with investors and that, that piece right there connecting and not making it seem selfish, right? Because you're, you're, you're saying how much do you have to invest, right? It's hard to just come out and, and say that you don't want to either because it makes you not be a personal, personal individual. So no, uh, we, we appreciate that. So do you, you know, you started these companies, do you have a, a SEC license uh, because now you have an equity firm or you, uh, or is it because you're focusing on commercial and real estate that you may not need one? How are you, how are you structured? 
Yeah. So we're, we operate under the Reg D, you know, 506 exception. We only work with accredited investors. They have to self-certify and then there's a verification. And so we're not licensed, but we only um, accept accredited investors into our deals. So. Got you. Okay. And then have you ever considered doing non-accredited investors? You know, it's actually interesting you bring that up. We've been talking about it internally um, recently. Um, we're, knock on wood, thankful that we've been oversubscribed on most of the deals that we've ever done. So it hasn't been a need for us yet. Um, we do have a lower minimum. So I think it's not as much of an issue of the non-accreditation as it is. It goes back to how much time and effort will it take to acquire all those customers and, you know, today it's not really a lack of investors for us. It's a lack of, not a lack, but we just don't have enough deal flow to, for the appetite that the investors have. So we haven't had to go down that path. And I frankly don't know much about that world. Um, you know, a lot of our counselors and attorneys have kind of pushed us away from it for the most part. That being said, I do think in the next five or 10 years, you'll continue to see the accreditation status become more and more watered down and more and more people will qualify for participating in these private placements. Um, so it's something that we are learning more about, but we don't currently have it. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned deal flow. Is deal flow hard right now because of COVID, because of elevated prices? What are you saying? Because we are having an issue with deal flow too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I can't speak to the multifamily space, although I know it's extremely competitive and there's a lot of people out there looking for deals. And so I know other sponsors that I hang out with in my peer group have echoed the same frustrations that you all have. have. I, I won't lie. I mean, in, in, in March, April, May, when we were really on lockdown, most sellers left the market and there really wasn't a lot of product coming across our desk at all. I would say that because we're in the Southeast and things have been a little bit looser for a lot of people, um, we started to see things pick up pretty dramatically at the end of the summer. And knock on wood, we closed a deal in June, uh, an acquisition, and then we're hoping to close one in November. We may get another one in this calendar year, but it's looking less and less likely, obviously. So, um, it seems like the sellers have come back into the marketplace. The debt markets have come back. It seems to be more deal flow. But I, I think, to your point, everyone's looking for real assets. Everyone's nervous about the election. Everyone's nervous about the economy and COVID. And they all want yield and cash flow. So I think it's just going to be, unfortunately for all of us in the sponsor world, I think it's going to be com competitive for the next five or 10 years and we need to start readjusting our investors' expectations of what the return profile will be for a lot of these deals, because I think people are going to continue to want real assets, cash flow, um, diversification out of the market. Brian, can, can, you, can you specify what is it that the adjustment that you're talking about in regards yeah. to the assets that you focus on? Yeah, so traditionally, we own a ton of suburban office. That's kind of been our, um, the majority of our portfolio, and it's, it's performed well. Um, and I don't have any existential worries about the future of office. I think it's way overblown. Mm -hmm. I, think the, I think the way we use office is going to change, but I think it will continue to be a big part of our professional lives. That being said, given everything going on right now, um, 
we are not going out there trying to take down a suburban commodity office business park um, in a suburb. It just, there's just a lot of unknowns. And what we've seen in our portfolio is new leasing is slow, lease renewals are slow. And so a lot of our assumptions, they don't work necessarily for those type of deals. So what we've started doing is moving more towards medical use, flex industrial use, maybe some data center type usage where you've got an office user, but they also have an internal uh, server system or server room and data center in the infrastructure of the building itself. So those are the type of things that we're doing. And then we're going a little bit lower in our deal size, um, just because we don't want to take on more risk. We're putting more equity in the deals. Um, So those are the type of things that we're focused on. But um, we still love secondary markets. We're still a big believer in the suburbs. And we're still focused on the Southeast and the Midwest. Awesome. Awesome. So we, you know, for us, our demographic pool of investors are mainly non-accredited. You know, that's just the circle and the access that we have. Um, You know, as we have progressed, we've, we bumped into, you know, accredited investors here and there, but they're very few, you know, being, being transparent and honest, that's just our circle. Right. And like you mentioned, you have to be honest and realistic with your circle and your influence. What tip would you give to someone like us or to us <laughs> as far as like, hey, how you can reach an accredited, accredited investors better, right? Because a lot of guys who are starting out just like us are have the same issue, have the same reach uh, obstacle, what would you say? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's no secret sauce to it. You've got to continue to, you know, bring your investors good opportunities, be really good to your investors. And then once you build that relationship, make the ask, right? Like, hey, if, if you have a guy who might not be accredited, but he's on the upper end of your, of your range in terms of his net worth, try to figure out who his centers of influences are, attorneys, CPAs, um, people that might be within that network. And, and I think, you know, every time that you meet with somebody, try to get three introductions out of them. And, you know, it's going to take time, but following up, staying on top of them, asking for the introductions and the warm referrals, you know, I think you'll be able to go up that spectrum and then you'll find a, a good sweet spot where you feel comfortable and they feel comfortable. But, and unfortunately, there's, there's no turnkey solution for that. I think it just takes a lot of time. And I think you have to be, to your point, the word you use, realistic. The sales cycle for, like for me, a a big private wealth management firm, it's probably 24 to 36 months for me. um, From when I first connect with them to when they actually invest with me. And there's a lot of no's in between, right? So I'm going from a big universe down to a small one. And so I think that's what you have to think of it as. It's just a sales funnel. And, you know, if you're not getting at bats, if you're not getting the nose, you're not trying hard enough to make the asks. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have a great solution there other than old school networking, which obviously given everything going on now is harder, but at the same time, things like LinkedIn, I mean, the way that we connected, yeah. you know, I probably might, I might not ever meet you all in person, but yeah. you had me on your show. I want to be really helpful to you all. Hopefully I can send some people your way um, and just be a resource for you. But I think sometimes people who are in your position who are starting out maybe feel like they 
they don't have the ability to, you know, be in the same network. I think you have to have, to have the mindset of, I'm going to make the asks, I'm going to pay it forward and try to be helpful and just be top of mind. And then over time, I think you can build up to it, but it's just a process. Yeah, no, I, I hear you, man. And that, that's something we've, I think it took us last year really to, it was a limiting belief. And I mean, last year we went full force and yeah, we don't care who we talk to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. we make, make the conversation happen. Um, so let's dive a little bit more into sales and, and marketing. Um, what kind of, what kind of marketing, you know, do you do? And then when you start, you talked about funnel, when you start doing your funnel, what kind of touch points are you doing with your investor? Yeah. And this was a component of the business when I first got into it that I put on the back burner. I didn't think it was important and it was a huge mistake by me. Um, we became just deal guys making acquisitions and then next thing we knew, we had way too many investors or way too many deals and we didn't have the infrastructure to handle them. And it almost ruined the business, frankly. So about a year and a half, two years ago, I took everything down to the studs and I completely reworked it and really went down to investor relations, communications, reporting, and transparency. And that's how I built this iteration of the company. So one of the first things I did was I hired a controller internally who with a CPA with a public accounting tax background, because for a lot of folks um, in my investor base, tax decisions and tax issues drive a lot of their investment choices. And so I wanted to make sure that we had somebody internally that was hyper-focused on the tax advantages that come with real estate and that could answer all the questions that they had. The next step I did is I hired a, a marketing consultant to start doing things like providing content, doing webinars, helping me get on shows like this, just to get our name out there. And one of the things that we really, really spent a ton of time on is providing content and value and education and being considered a thought leader in things that don't really have anything to do with real estate. So we do a lot of webinars and blog pieces about um, you know, personal taxes, um, finance, the stock market, life insurance, uh, best practices for uh, having a PNC um, coverage on your properties, et cetera, just to try to keep giving to our investor base. And then hopefully they think, okay, well, Brian and his team are very thoughtful people. They operate in this world. Let's go and see, let's learn more about what their, op what their offerings are and what the investment opportunities are. And I'll tell you, it was really painful and slow at the beginning and I didn't want to do yeah. it. And COVID kind of forced me to do it because I was usually doing the coffee meetings, the lunches, and I couldn't do it. And so I kind of threw myself in and it's just been hugely valuable. Um, and it, obviously it's a very noisy world right now, but a lot of the things that we're doing, like we did a webinar about SPACs last week, which has become a big headline thing. And I had investors reach out and say, thank you so much for doing it. This is terrific. And it didn't, it has nothing to do per se with my deals, but I think that's really important just to be top of mind to your investor base and be a resource and just keep giving, like smother them with love and it will come <laughs> back to you at some point. Right. Yeah. And so I'm sure there's a lot of guys in your network that are coming out of the service who have no clue how to operate in civilian life and they need all these different things. And it's really hard transition for them. I mean, that's a place that you could really step in. I know my brother-in-law went to the Naval Academy and I remember when he got out of active duty, he was doing all these coffee meetings and meeting people in town. And 
everyone was like, well, what do you want from me? I don't know where to put you. You don't have any skills. And he's like, well, I've got leadership skills, teamwork skills, like all these things. And he just kind of had to change how he told people about it and how he, you know, explained his experience and his service. And once he started doing that, it made a big difference, but he just didn't have the vocabulary. Like the Navy never taught him how to network, right? I mean, he was an officer from day one. He doesn't need a network. He already has everyone yeah. he needs to know. Yeah. yeah. I think things like that are, are soft skills and they may not seem like they have a direct impact on your business, but people really remember that kind of stuff. And so yeah. whatever your applicable network is, just being a resource and put yourself out there is one of the things that we do from a marketing component. And then we did, um, we brought Juniper Square in, which is a, you know, an online investor portal. Yeah. Just total game changer for us in terms of- I saw their demo. Their demo was amazing. And it's expensive. I won't lie. I mean, there are some options that are a little bit lower on the cost spectrum as you work your way up there. But to the extent that you can have an investor portal that has like a monthly reporting feature that you can push out quarterly updates that people can just kind of see in real time what their balance is and what their account statement looks like, it just saves a ton of time and energy and gives people a reassurance that like their money is being protected. You're doing everything that you need to be doing for them from an investment standpoint. And that was huge. And now we're kind of like taking things to the next level about maybe implementing a new CRM component. Um, we have a lot of contacts at this point. So trying to understand what that funnel looks like, how to raise capital in a more efficient manner. And so it's kind of opened my eyes that I thought we were really good at raising capital. I thought we had a lot of investors. And you talk to some other people, you talk to the marketing folks and you realize, man, we're like at a two out of a 10. And this is going to take a couple of years to get to the next level. So it's kind of fun, frankly. Um, You can spend a ton of time on it. And really you get everything out of it that you put into it. I mean, you know, doing stuff like this, it's seven, it's like eight o'clock at night at my house right now. But like, if there's one person that listens to this podcast that connects with me on LinkedIn because they like what they heard, that's huge, right? And so yeah. I think just putting yourself out there, getting over your fear and anxiety of maybe being made fun of in a lot of ways because you're outside your comfort zone, but just being a resource for people in your network, um, that's how I think about the marketing component of it. That's amazing. Oh, that's great. No, that's great, man. Yeah, we we uh, checked out Juniper Square um, we love the, you know, ACH distribution yeah. pieces of it. Security, Juniper Square has great security features too when it comes to data, you know, how they encrypt data, all that stuff. So, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of really good commercial real estate, what they call like prop tech options out there that um, some are more inexpensive than others, but it can save you a lot of time and energy and it can make you look bigger than you are in a lot of ways. And so I would really encourage people to kind of learn about the other service providers and, um, you know, explore those options. Yeah, no, that's definitely amazing advice. German, what do you got? No, I mean, I, I like the, uh, the advice and, and you're totally right. The uh, marketing and sales is the key of every business. I mean, we, we started with the marketing and uh, I think uh, we started out of um, enthusiasm and and we just threw ourselves out there uh allow without knowing what we're doing but uh but i think i think we got we got the marketing part we market ourselves uh very well and now we've got to work on the sales uh so i love i love that advice uh you also mentioned uh so you started marketing yourself uh recently 
And can you dive more in the difference between, you know, change, and this is for the people, for the audience that basically started like you, right? They started with the deal, they started racing, but they never put their, themselves out there. What differences do you see, key differences that you see be, uh, from before and now that, you, that you're marking yourself and everybody's getting to know you now? Yeah, I think the biggest difference I've seen is um, now with LinkedIn and webinars and podcasts and, and things like this, you can be top of mind to people 24-7 and accessible to people 24-7, whereas before it would usually take me, you know, six touches to convert an investor. You could figure a touch a month and that could be like a coffee or a conference call or whatever. But now people can go on the website, they can look at all my all our blogs, they can look at all our webinars, they can look at all my podcast appearances. I post twice a day on LinkedIn not always about real estate, but they can get a good sense of how I think about the world and whether their investment thesis is aligned with mine. And what I found is my funnel is a lot bigger and the, the amount of time it takes to get an investor to say yes or no is much quicker because they can really see who we are, what we do, how we think about things and whether or not it's a fit for them. And so that's been the biggest realization for me is, um, like the speed to get to that yes or no, because mm -hmm. I mean, the way I look at it is there's 12.4 million accredited investor households in America, households, not individuals. Yeah. So I just need like half of 1% of those folks to invest in my deals and I've got a great business. And so it, being able to just be present and be able to show them something really truncates the amount of time it takes to get that person to understand what you're doing and who you are. Exactly. And you're, and you're there once you put yourself online, like you say, YouTube, webinars and, and uh, podcasts, you're, you're there 24-7. It's just a matter of somebody clicking on that link and be like, okay, I, I like what, he's, what this guy is saying. Uh, and just making that, re the way that I do it, search the name and then you see where that person comes everywhere. Yeah, I exactly. like that. Yeah. I like that. So, you, you know, going back a little bit into non-accredited investors, um, what are some risks that you see with going into investing with non-accredited? Yeah. Um, so I don't give legal advice anymore because I'm not an attorney. Absolutely. I'll, I'll take it on a high level first. And I will say most of the issues that I've seen from when I was an attorney and from what I've seen as a sponsor and talking to other sponsors, people understand that deals might not work, right? I mean, we all want them to work. We invest ourselves and with our network because we think that we can make money. And we understand there's risk associated with it. The biggest issue I think comes from lack of communication and a lack of setting expectations on the front end. And that was a mistake I made early in my career where I was so desperate to get people to invest with me that I would never say things that weren't true, but I would just kind of, if they said, well, sure, I'd like to do this. I'd say, okay, great. You're coming in. And now, and now I have a, I have a, we have a conversation and we say, Hey, listen, like, this is what you can ex expect from me. Monthly P&L statements on the asset level, quarterly asset commentary, quarterly market commentary. We're going to put on some other content for you to educate you about other things we think are important. If you email me or call me, somebody from the team will get back to you within 24 hours. We, we may not have the answer, but we will respond within 24 hours. You're not allowed to call me on the weekends because that's the time that I have with my family. That's not why I started the business. So I think putting those guardrails up, it gives you a really good sense of kind of who the right fit is for you and, and who 
you don't want as an investor. It's very hard on the front end because you're just so desperate to get people to come in. But I think just being really transparent and communicative will solve a lot of the problems. In terms of a legal liability standpoint, I think it, all it is is really a function of you just need to take on more responsibility to educate these people about the, what the risks are and make sure that they understand completely that you know there's a reason that these are private deals. There's a reason that you're signing this paperwork. There's a reason that the gains are outside com, outsized compared to investing in the S&P and an index fund. And so I think it really comes back to education and making sure that they understand what the risk profile is, that the, it could go to zero, that there's a lot of things that are involved. And because fundamentally, that's what the accreditation is for, is the government has decided that you know these people are sophisticated and these people aren't. I think that's way too simplistic, but I do think some people have more experience than others in that world. And so that's what my non-legal recommendation would be is, to just provide them with a ton of resources, guidance, educational tools so that they can learn about kind of what a private placement is, what an offering looks like, what they can expect and not expect. That That's what I would say. Awesome, man. So, you know, getting here close to wrap up, we always like to ask, you know, you have a family, you just mentioned, you know, on the weekend, do not call me, <laughs> not bother me, right? <laughs> You know, a lot of people get into the real estate, you know, business into the venture and it's all real estate, it's all business all the time. And that affects family. How do you balance the law? How do you make it all work? Yeah. I mean, it's a work in progress, right? But I've got always, yeah. So I'm married and I've got two boys. They're seven and four. And um it's interesting, you know, with COVID, I used to travel a ton. I would do hundred plus flights a year, probably 25 to 30 um, overnights a year, hotels. And that just was the business, right? And what I've realized now is I can actually be more productive and more efficient if I just am more organized and spend more time focused on what I think my best ROI activities are. So doing things like my LinkedIn posts, my blog pieces, my webinars, trying to be really thoughtful about who I reach out to and who I have calls with. I've actually been more productive, I think, um, than I was pre-COVID when I was running around all the time, just desperately trying to get stuff on the books and the calendar and really not doing a great job of following up, of actually listening, because I was always running on to the next thing. And so I think that's where it comes down to balance, right? I don't think we were meant to work 15 hours a day, every day, all day Mm -hmm. on just this one thing. And at the end of the day, at least from a sales and marketing standpoint, I think the best salespeople are very empathetic. Like they can put themselves into the shoes of the person that they're talking to and pitching and understand what their problems are and what their troubles are and have a real conversation with them. But in order to do that, you need to know yourself and you need to actually listen to what people are telling you. Because I think a lot of what happens is when people pitch, they give the resume, they talk about how great they are, how smart they are. But the person on the other side of the table doesn't really care. They care about their own problems. And so I do a lot more, I spend a lot more time listening and reading and thinking about issues that are impacting other high net worth individuals and family offices. And I come about it from that perspective. And I I think it's been much more productive for me. Um, In terms of what I do on a balance, I I try to spend a ton of time with the boys on the weekend. Um, I've tried to stay fit and not get like gross, overweight fat. 
Um, and I'm a huge sports fanatic. So football, hockey, whatever, um, always watching that kind of stuff. I think in, in our world, which can be really messy, like our deals sometimes never end or the conversations with an investor just keep going and going. I like things where it's like in three hours, there's going to be a winner or a loser in this thing. And it might not be fair, but like, that'll be the end of it. And I really like that finality of like, okay, nice for three hours and we're going to come to a conclusion and then we could talk about it all day. But like, this is it. I like that part of it. So So you sound like my brother, man. He always talks about soccer relating it. Like, Hey, if you score a goal, we won. If, if Uh, you don't, if you don't start the game, then you never play the game. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's why they play. The, that's why they play the games. And I love just. Yeah. Being, I love like getting lost in the drama of the game. Um, so yeah, I watch EPL on Saturdays typically, and we have an MLS team in Nashville now, so started following them as well. So it's a ton of fun. Gotcha. Yeah. After this, we're watching the World Cup qualifiers for uh, South America. No, so. nice. Yeah, so we're we're big fans. We'll see. We'll see if uh, the U.S. can even qualify this time around. Just, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. They, they probably will. That's pretty sad, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But yeah, Brian. So t- tell our audience, man, where uh, where can they find you? Where can they reach you at? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so like I said, I'm super active on LinkedIn. If you just kind of uh, connect with me, shoot me a message. I'll carve out some time and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Try to give you as much free advice as I can. And then you can go to the website, excelsiorgp.com. We do send out a monthly newsletter. We have a ton of content on there. Um, so we'd love for you to, if you're interested in learning more about us, shoot us a note. We'll set up a call and we'll go from there. Awesome, man. You know, thank you, you also- so much. Because I, li- I like to put it out there for everybody. You mentioned webinars, and I think do you mentioned YouTube as well. Yeah, we upload all the webinars to a YouTube channel. Um, oh, there you go. After they're yeah. done, yeah. So awesome. Yeah, yeah so all over the place. Uh, go YouTube, subscribe, uh, make a comment, uh, likes, and everything. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, no, man. Any way we can support and you know each other, that that's what we're about. But thank you so much for coming on, Brian, and. For anyone listening out there, you know, go ahead and get, give us a five-star review. Uh, shoot us an email. Give us some feedback. Uh, let us know what guests you want on next, and we'll keep going from there. And we're out. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, man.